The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. A secret document recently obtained by Global News showed the federal government has explored a number of possible options for bringing captured Islamic State groups uh, members back to Canada. The briefing, which was recently released under the Access to Information Act, went on to say none of the options are ideal and all present different challenges and risks. Joining me now is Phil Gursky, the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants and a former strategic analyst at CSIS. Phil specializes in radicalization and terrorism. Phil, thanks for joining me this afternoon. My pleasure, Dylan. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Now, first off, I, I, I'm guessing that you're not all that surprised that the government would be looking at this. Or am I putting words in your mouth? I'm, I'm thinking that the government would have to look at this, considering the pressure coming from other countries. No, you're absolutely right. And in fact, if I may, I actually wrote a whole book on the question of what to do with Western foreign fighters entitled Western Foreign Fighters back in 2015. No, it it is an issue because um, these are Canadians. Uh, Many of them were actually born and raised in our country, and therefore they are our problem in in a sense. doesn't mean we necessarily are hemmed in to only one or two solutions, but the fact is is that, as in other cases where Canadians committed crimes abroad or do things abroad they shouldn't do, we can't just un-Canadian them, if I could use that term, which doesn't tell you exist. <laughs> so this is why the government is considering the options that it has, absolutely. Haven't we seen that, though? Didn't that just happen in England, where they pretty much un-Britished some people, <laughs> if, we to, if we wanted to say it that way? Didn't they just do that with some, some I think they were from wives of, uh, of some ISIS fighters? Yeah, well, they tried to, Jalen. I'm not sure what, in fact, they could do under British law. See, here's the problem. A lot of these people um, who were born in our country are, are Canadian citizens. You can't take away that citizenship. What they try to do in the UK, and I'm not sure they can do this, is they, they said that the young lady in question who claims she, you know, made a mistake, yeah. she wasn't sure what she's getting into, which is complete BS, if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, they said, look, at she's actually Pakistani British. She was born in the UK. But we're, or, or is it Pakistan or Bangladesh? I forget which one. Um, we're going to let her go back to her grandparent citizenship. I'm not sure you can do that. <laughs> if you're born in Edmonton or Ottawa, you can't say, well, in my case, I'm third generation Ukrainian, Polish, Canadian. You can't say, well, Ukraine will take you back. No, I was born and raised in Canada. This is my home. Well, Phil, what do we do with Western foreign fighters then? What you know, if you're the you're the pro on this. You you wrote the book on it. What? How do? Where do we even begin? Well, it's a very complicated question. I think there are a number of things, uh, possibilities that we have to consider. First and foremost, this has been my uh, position since day one. The fact remains is that they left our country willingly. They weren't. They mm-hmm. weren't um, forced. They weren't coerced. They weren't hoodwinked. They left our country willingly to join what they knew was a terrorist organization. So that's the first problem. Secondly, if in fact they carried out crimes in another jurisdiction, another nation state, my position is that nation state has every right to try you under their laws. (laughs) So if you join a terrorist group in Syria or Iraq, and that's illegal in Syria and Iraq, which I think it is, they have a right to try you. The problem is is that the Syrian or Iraqi justice systems aren't quite the same as the Canadian justice system. In fact, in Iraq, a lot of former Islamic State terrorists have had five-minute trials and they've been executed. And some say, well, you can't have that happen because that's not fair. Well, I don't mean mean to sound cruel, 
But if you can't do the time, don't do the crime when well, it comes so to going to Iraq or Syria. I can guarantee you right now, look, I don't even have to look at my text line and say there's a lot of people that, uh, that, uh, that would agree 100% with that statement. This is, you know, as much as I, I, do, I personally, my own personal position is I do not believe in capital punishment. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, if, 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 if joining ISIS in Iraq is a capital offense, well, uh, it's a capital offense in Iraq, yeah. and you shouldn't have gone there. The, the other issue is, is that, you know, some say, well, they're Canadians, we have to try them here. I don't think we have to try them here. I do think that if we have an extradition treaty with Iraq or Syria or Somalia or Nigeria, because it's not just those two nations, but all kinds of nations, about Canadians going and fight as terrorists, we can look at extradition once their trials have taken place in a foreign country. Then there are those that say, well, just bring them back because they belong here and, and there are a problem. Yes, there are a problem in the sense they were radicalized here before they left, but the bottom line still is that other crimes were committed abroad. So it, it's really, really complicated. I, I just don't think that we have an obligation, uh, the way that I read the Charter, we have an obligation to, to, to take them back if they find their own way back. That's right in the Charter. The Charter does not say, I will pay for your airplane ticket and facilitate your return. But if you decide I'll get back here, I can't refuse your entry because that's what the Charter says. Phil, do we know how many, like, what numbers are we looking at right now? I saw, I think, around 40, but a number of them believed were believed to be children. What, what do you hear? Yeah, the numbers are all over the map. So clearly when I worked for CSIS, I would have had access to a lot more intelligence, which I unfortunately can't share with your listeners. But <laughs> the numbers that I've been seeing publicly is that historically, and it's not quite clear what historically means, somewhere around 200 Canadians left to go join terrorist groups like Islamic State, like Al-Qaeda, like Al-Shabaab in Somalia. Um, and it's one-third, one-third, one-third. So we think one-third is dead, are dead, rather. Okay. We think one one third are kind of still there or elsewhere, and we think that one third have already returned, which is oh. an interesting one third that we don't know a lot about. And that number um, does not include women and children. Okay. So a lot of them had children. That's not part of the two hundred. So, yeah, the figures I've seen is there's some maybe a dozen plus families that are still out there looking mm-hmm. for some kind of status back here. So the United States. Um, has been urging countries to take back and prosecute uh, their citizens. Um, Ottawa looking at uh, a way of doing. I think one of the notes said in this in this uh, briefing that came out, it said um, that there were important political, logistical, and policy implications, and that despite the charter right of Canadians to return to Canada, quote, this does not necessarily oblige a specific course of action by the government of of Canada. Do you expect the Canadian government to make a decision? on this anytime soon, Phil? You're asking me that, Jay Lynn, with an election coming up in six months' time? My, I, I, my, 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 I'm going to say no. My, my best description of the government's position so far is a good old Canadian analogy. They've been ragging the puck now for quite some time. Yeah. Um, this is not going to win anybody votes nope. in October. So they're going to rag the puck until October, and then depending on who wins the election, We'll have, we have the same, we'll have the same interview, Jalen, and probably uh, in, in November about what to do with this. It, uh, the problem is it's toxic. No matter what you decide to do, it's a toxic issue. Canadians aren't going to go to the polls um, screaming to have their fellow citizens who join terrorist groups have their, faci- their, their, their return facilitated. Mm-hmm. So it's a no-win situation for the political parties. I don't expect any action before the election. What do you, you know, the, the women and children aspect uh, of this, Phil, does that, does that complicate it even more? It does. And my position on women has been the same as men. They went there 
willingly. They yeah. went there with full knowledge of what they were doing. They, yeah. they should serve justice in Iraq or Syria. The kids are different. Look, the kids don't have any agency in this. If you're born, if you're brought as a toddler or as an infant, or you were born in Iraq or Syria, you're not a terrorist. You don't pose a threat to Canadian national security. So what I've done, advocated, and some countries have done this already in Europe, bring the kids back, let the parents face justice abroad. And the kids, the kids are placed with family, or they're placed in state care. And I, <laughs> this may sound awful, Julian, although probably not amongst your listeners, but if you brought your kids to Iraq or Syria to join Islamic State, mm-hmm. you, you don't, you're not qualified as a good parent in my books. <laughs> and so maybe the state should intervene. Um, now, with the kids who are 12, 13, 14, hmm, that's a little more complicated. Mm-hmm. We know that some of the kids took, took part in terrorist activities. We know some of the kids took part in atrocities. What do you do with a 12-year-old who, you know, helped mm-hmm. behead somebody? Like, uh, what do you do for that child? What kind of rehabilitation or psychiatric treatment can you give this kid? I, I don't know. It's, these kids are really messed up and will be for quite some time. I feel for them, but I do think we, need, we have a, I think we should bring the kids back. The parents, well, they made their bed. They can lie in it. Yeah, then, then what do we do with the kids? What do we do with the kids? And who's taking care of the kids? And all of that. And, and yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating one. I'm going to read your book. And it's what what to do with Western foreign fighters? Basically, yeah, Western foreign fighters, the threat to homeland national security. And it came out in 2016. In 2016. Uh, Phil Gursky joining me this afternoon. Phil, um, when you talk about radicalization and, and, and these people, the Canadians who, who went overseas to, to join a terrorist organization, you talk about them being radical here. Um, What does a de-radicalization process look like? How does that happen? What a great question. I I have um, traditionally pushed back on the notion of de-radicalization only because I don't know what it, I kind of know what it means, but I don't don't know how you measure it. So for example, let's say you and I uh, subscribe to a certain loathsome ideology and you and I both decide after a while, hmm, it's, you know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not doing well here. I'm going to tell the government I no longer believe in this ideology. How do I know that? How does the state know that? How does society know that? They can't read our minds. We could be lying. We could be saying things for all kinds of reasons. The term that gets it's kind of parallel to de-radicalization, which is getting more currency nowadays, is called disengagement. Mm. What disengagement means is you stop doing something. Yeah. So if you hung around the wrong people. Uh, if you post it on the wrong website, if you carry out certain activities and you stop those activities, that's observable because that's behavior. De-radicalization suggests you stop thinking a certain way. And unless you folks in Edmonton have these great mind-reading machines <laughs> that we don't have here <laughs> in the nation's capital, I don't know how you get there. So um, disengagement is okay. The problem is that if you disengage but still think the same ideas, it's possible to re-engage down the road. So, you know, JLM, there are people who claim they can de-radicalize people. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, that at a buck sixty gets you a cup of coffee at Tim's. I don't know how you measure it. Yeah. I don't know what you do with it. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Of course, uh, you know, my text line right now is just, you know, talking about Omar Khadr nonstop. I can, you know, I'm just saying. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, we can't afford, you can't pay, you know, all that sort of stuff. And it's just, that's kind of where they're going right now uh, with this. Um, and, and let's be, let's be frank. Frank, that's not what they're talking about right now. They're talking about, or they're they're looking at trying to figure out how to deal with with some of these uh, these these people who left this country and and 
joined a terror organization elsewhere and, and the pressure is on to, to return them home. But what do we do? What do how do we do it? And what do we do with them once they're here? Phil Gursky joining me is the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants, a former strategic analyst with CSIS, has worked in numerous uh, policing organizations. Uh, Phil, can, if you were to look, and, I, and, and I'm not sure if this is a fair question for you, ISIS strength right now, we know that um, uh, had been dealt at numerous, you know, very tough blows over the past year. We're seeing that it, it, it seems to be not as um, uh, super organized. We're seeing that uh, people are going elsewhere. What is the status of ISIS, the Islamic State, right now? Yeah, that's not a great question, Jalen. I, I think, you know, when I worked at ISIS, we always thought that organizations such as Islamic State, such as Al-Qaeda, larger ones, we always saw them through like a triple lens. There's the core group, there are the affiliates, and then there's the sort of inspired people. The core group clearly is not what it was in 2014. Mm-hmm. They've lost the caliphate, they've lost their geographic footprint, they're not doing well. The affiliates are thriving in some ways. You saw yeah. what happened in, in Colombo, in yes, Sri Lanka, a month ago. Uh, we saw what, there's a group in Central Africa, there's groups in Libya, there are groups in Nigeria, so the affiliates are doing quite well. And then the third level are those that think Islamic State is the cat's meow. And most Canadians who join terrorist groups would be of that ilk. They would say, you know, we had the attack in the war. He had attack in Edmonton, uh, you know, a year and a half ago. Near yep. Commonwealth Stadium, a guy with an Islamic State flag, right? Mm-hmm. He's as much Islamic State as I am. But he, he, he was inspired by the group. And he thought, yeah, I, I'm going to buy a neat flag and put up my car and I'm going to run down a cop, right? So um, the, the, the unfortunate reality is that even if the core is probably irreparably damaged for the time being, Although I've seen estimates of as many as 30,000 Islamic State fighters still wandering around, mm-hmm. whether it's Iraq or Syria or elsewhere. And then the affiliates, and then the inspired, uh, the group is not going away, and they're still capable of very lethal action, as we saw on Easter Sunday in those churches. Yeah. You know what the other thing um, is interesting, too? There's been a lot of talk, and uh, I'm almost out of time, and I could talk to you for a whole hour on on this one, Phil, but there's been a lot of talk, certainly in Canada recently, about white supremacist groups and um, and uh, the rise in that. There's been a number of articles uh, on that. What are your thoughts on, on that? Um, do, you, do you think that they, they are growing, or are they just being more vocal? Well, that's a really good question, and I, and I can't answer it definitively because it's not my specialty, but okay. I'll, I'll just I'll put, it, I'll put it this way. There certainly is a, a threat of, of white nationalists or white supremacists, just as much as there's a still threat from, threat from Sikh extremism, there's still a threat from other extremist groups. I would still say, uh, given my bias where I, where I worked and what I worked on, that the Islamist extremists are still the number one threat. The yeah. other threats are still there. Are they growing? Hard to say. Um, but I think the bottom line, and this is what your listeners should take away, is that even no matter what we think of ISIS and al-Qaeda and soldiers of Odin and whatever these groups are, the fact remains that in Canada, there are very, very, very few people that believe in this kind of stuff. We've had very few attacks since 9-11 in comparison to other countries. This is still a very, very safe country. We've foiled some attacks, some attacks thanks to CSIS and the RCMP and their partners. Yeah. So the threat's there. Uh, it's not a very big threat, at least not compared to other countries in the world. Uh, doesn't mean we can ignore it. We shouldn't. But let's let's you know let's compare like with like, right? We're not Somalia, we're not Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're we're a really safe country, and we do what we need to do to try to uh, thwart these threats and uh, stop these people from doing bad things. Phil, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you this afternoon. I look forward to doing it again sometime soon. Anytime, Dylan. Thanks for calling. Thank you so much, Phil Gursky, joining me this afternoon. You-